Did I say it's Friday? Why am I telling you guys? You guys know already. Okay. Is Friday the 28th? You didn't sound as confident about that as you did Friday. But it is a Friday. Okay. This is good. Everybody's going to know it's not Thursday. That's what Chris said. Thursday, not Thursday. Okay. The women have a blessing bag event the very next day. Um, so if you haven't already uh, marked your calendar for that, please be sure and do so. Um, and then uh, men, mark your calendar for March 5th. March 5th will be our wild game dinner up here at the church. And you can register for that um, on Church Center. You can find information on all this stuff, like Friday for game night, is also on Church Center. And it didn't get it wrong. Chris did, though. <clears throat> And then uh, on February 20th, we are going to have a baby dedication um, in our service that morning, that Sunday morning. So if you have a newborn and would like to dedicate um, your child, um, please call the church office um, to get set up to be a part of that. Um, and then the last thing that I have is I mentioned last week. Um, after the service today, we'll have a brief 15-minute meeting across the hall in the great room, uh, just in the, in the class where the Bereans meet, um, for marriage mentoring, and uh, that we want to begin a marriage mentoring ministry here at CBC. So if you are the type of person who thinks that you have something to offer, um, or you're the, you're the type of person who thinks you might need this, please come and join me. Um, you do not have to be perfect to help other people um, with relationships. Um, and we want, we want to take a first step toward that this morning. So right after the service, walk across the hall. Um, I'll be over there in a few minutes. 15 minutes later, you can go to Mama Juanita's. That's it. You guys stand up with us. Stand before the throne 
for all the last to stand before the throne for all the last to stand before the throne on Christ the solid rock I stand oh other ground is sinking sand all other ground is sinking sand A solid rock I stand All other ground is sinking sand All other ground is sinking
for giving us such hope that we can look to your son to know that we are loved, that we belong, that you desire to be with us. Father, be with us this morning and teach us through your truth. We love you. We thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can have a seat. If you're one of our kiddos, K through 5, you can be dismissed to Sunshine Kids Club. Discouragement is rampant in our society today. Do any of you know anyone that's discouraged right now? Have any of you been discouraged this week? I would say that most of us have cycled through that at some time within the last month. Well, experiencing discouragement is hard enough in life, but it's even worse when we experience discouragement when we are serving Jesus, when we are choosing to use the gifts that he has given us and the time and the energy and the, and the love to serve others with that. It's even harder to be discouraged at those times. Can you think with me of some of the ways that we experience discouragement at, uh, when we are serving God? Some of us uh, begin to think, you know, what we do doesn't matter. Or no one notices. Or we're just tired. Or, or we're too nice to say, I need a break right now. Or we begin to compare our ministry with someone else's ministry or some former ministry or some ministry we see on the Internet. There, there are all sorts of ways that we become discouraged when we are serving the Lord. We need encouragement when we serve the Lord. The people, the Israelites back in the 6th century B.C., needed encouragement to persevere in the work that God had called them to do. Uh, I hit a rough patch in ministry uh, several years ago, and uh, rougher than normal, and uh, was quite discouraged, and so I went looking for encouragement, and I went to a good friend of mine that uh, we had done a lot of ministry together. We had uh, done a lot of things together and uh, just kind of risked being vulnerable. You know, I just kind of poured out my heart and said, man, I, this is where I'm at. And, and it just doesn't seem like whatever I do matters. And I'm not even sure God is using me right now. And my friend looked at me after listening politely and he said, you need some encouragement. You should get out there and find it. <laughs> now, that's funny to say today, but that was not a comforting balm for my soul back then. In fact, it was more like daggers to the heart. You know, I risked being vulnerable, and I decided right there, you know, it probably held for about six weeks. I'm not going to tell anybody else what I'm going through. 
because that hurts, you know? Here I want encouragement, and he didn't provide it. For those of you that always need to know the rest of the story, we did talk about it. I let him know I was hurt. He, I forgave him. We reconciled. We're still good friends to this day. But I was in ministry and discouraged, and I know that many of you can experience, have experienced the same thing and can identify with those types of thoughts, especially when you're trying to serve Lord. It's, it's one thing to be discouraged about all the circumstances of life. It's quite another to say, Lord, I'm serving you, and to feel discouraged, to feel disappointed, to begin to lose hope in what you're doing. So we want to look at Haggai chapter 2 today. We're in this short sermon series called Course Correction. And the idea is that Haggai is speaking to the Israelites that have come back from Babylon after 70 years of exile. And he's talking to them about misplaced priorities. We saw that last week. This week, he's going to talk to them about their discouragement and persevering. Four messages that he gives in the space of five months. This is message number two. Discouragement happens to all of us, but the good news is we can do something about it, and especially when we turn to Christ. And that's what ultimately Haggai, speaking for the Lord, is going to say, turn back to me. So you and I may need that type of course correction. Discouragement itself is not a sin. It happens to all of us. But it becomes a sin when we let it drive us away from Jesus Christ. We want to be a people that turn to Jesus in the midst of discouragement. Haggai chapter 2. The workers are feeling discouraged. God steps in and gives them hope. And he's going to tell them, tell us where to look when you're feeling discouraged. We're going to look in four different locations. The first one in verses 1 to 3 is we're going to look within and let it go. We've got to look within and, and let all these comparisons go because discouragement is real. And in these three verses, I think it's awesome that God addresses the Israelites. And on the one hand, certainly he wants to confront their reality and help them understand this is what you're going through. But on the other hand, he's just showing an awareness of what they are experiencing and what they are going through. And he doesn't come at them like a mean boss who just says, hey, suck it up, buttercup. Let's get back in the game. And he doesn't come at them like my friend did. He's going to show them that he's got an understanding. But the main thing he's doing here is he's helping them admit and acknowledge that they are discouraged because you've got to be able to admit that in order to deal with it. And this is what we see in verses one, uh, verses one to three of chapter two. Scholars tell us that the date of this is October 17th, 520 BC. And I said last week that Haggai is the most precisely dated book in the, in the prophets. So this is October 17th. This is message number two. It's the last day of the Feast of the Tabernacles. And, and I believe that's God's decision to have it done then. That's going to come into play. We'll see a, a couple different ways. This is what uh, Haggai says in verses one and two of chapter two. On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of all the people. So message two from Haggai, from God through Haggai is the instrumental voice, and it is to the same audience. It's to the leadership it brought them back, these 50,000 people, but it's to all the people, all the ones who are worshipers of God and have said, we want to return to Jerusalem. God's confronting them with the reality of their uh, discouragement. And then he's going to ask them three questions. And these three questions are necessary not only to help them acknowledge and realize where they are as uh, God fears, as those who are discouraged in their perseverance to God's work, but how to begin to process it so that God can give them a solution. We see the three questions in chapter 2, verse 3. 
He says this, who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? God draws out their thinking. He is aware of what they are going through. And so they have returned 16 years ago. They started to lay the foundation. They got discouraged by the Samaritans. They realized, hey, we got a lot to go on here. We got to restore a nation, build an economy, build our own homes, start our gardens, get some livestock, all kinds of things that pushed aside doing God's work, doing rebuilding the temple, which is what Darius had commanded them to do, the king of Persia, and also... Uh, God himself had commanded them to do. God's going to draw out their thinking. He's going to expose their discouragement and cause them to acknowledge that they're making comparisons. Comparisons are unnecessary for God's people, and they are damaging. Ultimately, comparison devalues what God is doing in the present. It, It looks to glory days, or it looks to some imagination that we've got. And it doesn't realize that God is working right now. The first question is this, who is still living that saw the former temple? So God realizes that the people there are discouraged because they're looking at the ruins of Jerusalem. It's been devastated 70 years before the Babylonians came in and destroyed the city. And then 16 years ago, they returned and did a little bit of work on the foundation and then got back to their own thing. So the city itself is still devastated. It still lies in ruins. And they think even the thought of trying to rebuild the temple, there's no way we will go back to what Solomon built, to Solomon's temple. That's just incredible what God had used Solomon to do. And when you read through 1 Chronicles 28 and 29, you get a picture of Solomon's temple. You get a picture of what God has done through these people and what he supplied to build the temple. All the metals and all the uh, wood and, and the stone and the skilled laborers. These people are thinking we can never return to that. Solomon's temple was beautiful and filled with expensive items. In fact, it was so beautiful that people came from all the nations around to see it. It was considered one of the wonders of the world at that time. And it was beautiful. And so he says, who is still living that saw the former temple? Well, it's only been 66 years since that day when it was destroyed in 586. So there are probably people in their 70s who realize and recognize that this temple is never going to compare. In fact, we're told in Ezra chapter 6 that these people, or 3 I think it is, that um, these people who had seen the former temple wept when the foundation went in. Now, some wept for joy because the temple was going to be restored, but others were weeping and shouting because it would never compare to what Solomon's temple had looked like. They had seen it. So God confronts them with that. Then he says, how do you see it now? Discouraging circumstances depressed the people and stifled their initiative to do the work. He's basically saying, hey, you've got to grieve this loss. That's what you're doing anyway, but don't be angry at me and don't quit the work because we've got work to do and God wants to rebuild the temple at this time. There's a great deal of hard work to be done and so any incentive to persevere has been undermined by this discouragement, by the hard work to be done, by the political enemies around them, by everything that's going on in their own personal homes. But the fact that they're wondering if God is just going to work a miracle and take care of all of this for them and perhaps just wave his wand and rebuild Solomon's temple. They have no money to pay skilled laborers like Solomon did. There's a lot that is weighing them down. God wants to make sure they recognize all that is going on. And so he asks the third question there in verse three, does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? Again, he's reading their minds. He's bringing to the forefront what the truth is so that they can deal with reality. When it comes to God's work, as I said earlier, 
Comparison devalues what he is doing now. These people are discouraged and they have no clue how God is at work. All they know is this isn't as good as that was. Whether we saw it or we heard about it, this is never going to compare. And so they're going after that. What are they comparing? Well, I think number one, they're saying it doesn't compare to what we had. Solomon's temple is what we had. Secondly, I think they're saying it does not compare to what we deserve. This message is given on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And every observant Jew that day would have realized that that was the same day, 440 years before, that Solomon's temple was dedicated on. And so not only is this not what they had in the past, but it's not what they deserve. They deserve Solomon's temple. And so in some ways, they're thinking, God, you've let us down. You haven't come through. I think thirdly, they're saying it does not compare to what we expect of God. What we expect of God. The Feast of the Tabernacles, you remember that feast? It's an eight-day feast. They built booths, some of the families, and moved into them for the week. They were celebrating God. They were worshiping him because of his power, his sovereignty, the fact that he worked miracles through the plagues to get them out of Egypt and the Red Sea. And through the wilderness, he provided for them through the manna and the water and the quail. And then he brought them into the promised land. So they're, they're thinking of all these miracles along the way. They are celebrating the God of miracles, the God who does what he says he's going to do. And then they're looking around themselves and saying, you know, Lord, you, you brought us back to Jerusalem. It's devastated. We're too puny. We're too small. We can't do what you're asking us to do. Where are the miracles? Why don't you act now like you acted then and start working the miracles? Do you ever wonder that? Do you ever read God's word or, or hear a story from a biblical account from God's word and you think, you know, God, you were awesome back then. But what's going on today? It's an easy question to ask. And it's logical because we want to know how God is at work. And sometimes the problem is us just wanting to be in control, wanting to say, this is what God is doing, wanting to know what God is doing, wanting to approve what God is doing. The Israelites would be celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, and they're wondering, this doesn't compare to what we expect of God. Here's the key for the Israelites and, and for us today. Don't stop the work because it doesn't compare with something that was there in the past. This is always one of the problems of God's people. We face it today, don't we? We say, hey, you know, I, I just wish things were like when I first came, like they were when I first came to faith in Jesus Christ. And they remember the excitement and the enthusiasm when we want to go back to that. Or we, we say, I, I just wish things were like they were at my old church. You know, that church man, it just had everything going. Or, or like the churches that we see around the country that just have everything going for them. Or I wish that uh, this community here was like my community where I really grew well and did life with others. We do all kinds of comparisons. We have all kinds of desires. And that's not where God wants us. It devalues the work it is doing here. But the main thing that God wants us to learn from that is that he's always doing a new work. Newness is what he does. And he's always creating something new that is right for this situation, right for your circumstances and your life right now. And it is going to be better for you at this time than anything from the past could be. He wants to shake up our, our thinking he wants to get into our heads and realize that the thing in coming in the future is always better for our present situation than the past. We don't need to hang on to the traditions or the fond memories. We can celebrate them and praise God for them. But in God's economy, we need to keep on working. We need to keep on serving. We need to realize that we can't compare ministries and let that discourage us.
What's going on may be different, but it will always be better. So we've got to look within. We need to acknowledge our discouragement, and we need to let comparisons go. Having helped uh, the Israelites admit their discouragement and see how it was going on, now God offers a solution in verses 4 and 5. And this is what we see, that we are to look up and lean into God. First, we had to look it within and, and, and let it go, especially those comparisons. Now we need to look up and, and, and lean into God. God doesn't want us stuck in discouragement. This sense of defeat and, and hopelessness is not why Jesus endured the cross. It's not why, as we just sang, that he rose from the dead and conquered the grave. He doesn't want us to live in defeat. He wants us to persevere with strength and to experience his joy in the midst of it. Verses 4 and 5. When we talk about leaning into God, we talk about trusting and obeying God, rediscovering God in these new circumstances, rediscovering God in our life presently and, and, and hooking it up with who he is throughout Scripture and learning new things about him, learning new ways to rely upon him. When we deal with discouragement, sometimes it requires a tenderness, as we saw in verses 1 to 3, and sometimes it requires a toughness, and that's what we see in verses 4 and 5. God calls them out, and he tells them directly what to do. He's going to give three commands. He's going to repeat the same command three times, and then give a second command with it. This is what we see in verses 4 and 5. But now, take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord. And work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. Do not fear. Three times he repeats, take courage. Three times, Scripture has printed on our page, declares the Lord, and then finally declares the Lord of hosts. So it's drawing our attention to who is giving this command. This isn't Haggai, it's not a, a Levite, it's not a priest, it's not a rabbi, it's not a good friend, it's not a godly person, it's not a spiritual person. This is God himself saying, take courage, be strong, be confident, go forward with what I have called you to do. Take heart, is how Jesus put it throughout the Gospels with his disciples. We have a command to obey. We've got to change our attitude. And he's made it clear here that the attitude that is wrong is fearfulness. And so what he's doing here, our faith is strengthened in this passage, not by learning something new and something exciting, but by being reminded of what we already knew, being reminded of God's truth, coming back to what we have heard and known. And so God challenges their attitude of fear. He changes, challenges their actions and calls them to depend on him. Verse four again, but now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage, Joshua. Take courage, all the people of the land. God repeats it three times. He wants us to get it. He wants to be clear that we are to be strong, that we are to go forward and do what he has called us to do. When it comes to trusting and obeying God, attitude is a key issue. We typically want to take control, and we typically don't want to submit with humility to what God is saying or to what God is calling us to do. And when we say, when we say that we're discouraged and we're feeling hopeless and all the energy has been sapped out of us, that's the last thing we want to hear from God is to be strong, to take courage. But that's what he calls us to do. Just think of all the people throughout Scripture where God has said that. Joshua, Moses, David, the disciples. This goes on and on. Take courage. Be strong. That's our responsibility here. God calls us to trust him and obey him. And when we choose that attitude of trusting God, then the new action follows quickly. He says, and work, and work. 
when we obey God by being strong in the faith, then we persevere in what he has called us to do. We continue, regardless of the feelings, regardless of the emotions, regardless of the discouragement that is going on, and work. Persevere. Abound in the work of the Lord. And then, that's our responsibility. God gives us his responsibility. He gives us a promise that, again, we see throughout Scripture many, many times throughout the Old Testament to the Israelites and then to all of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, I am with you. I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, the living God of the universe, the Lord of heaven's armies, the one who is invincible in his might, who is sovereign and majestic, whose compassion is unlimited, whose love is unconditional. He is the one who says, I am with you. And as we saw last week, that is his presence that gives us a companionship wherever we are at all times. But it is also an enablement, an empowerment. This is God saying, I am with you to accomplish what I have given you to do. Jesus made it extremely clear in Matthew 28, his last words before he ascended, Go make disciples. That's how the gospel would spread throughout the world for the rest of this season until Christ returns. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's a matter of great comfort. But it's more than comfort. It, it helps us be convinced that this is what he wants us to do. And it gives us the courage to go out and do it and to realize that he's not just a shadow following us around, but he is internally with us, empowering us to obey his commands. He's never going to give us a command that we can't do so he can sit on the sidelines and laugh. He's going to give us a command and then empower us to do it. And he is right here with us. That's incredibly good news that we can carry on. We can do what God has called us to do. And then he reiterates it all in verse 5. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. They were full of fears about their enemies. Full of fears about the hard work and their capability. But their greatest fear was that God had abandoned them. That perhaps because of their sin and their exile, God wanted nothing to do with them. Or perhaps because they don't have the temple, the presence of the Lord right there with them, that God was not with them. And so he reminds them, I am with you. That covenant I made with you when I brought you out of Egypt that I would always be with you, it's still true. My spirit was abiding with you then, is abiding with you now, and will keep abiding with you. Therefore, do not fear. Do not fear. Now, as hard as it is to wrap our minds around that, I think it's worthy of meditation this week. To consider the idea that in the midst of discouragement, the Lord says to us, take courage and do not fear. I think it's worth meditating on the idea that he is with us. And how does that dissipate fear? And how does that dissolve hopelessness? Because he is with us. We need this to be more than just an intellectual exercise and a knowledge that we can recite when asked. We want this to be experienced. We want God's word to get through us and to recognize who he is as Lord of hosts. And that he is empowering us and he is lifting us up out of discouragement. We can do the same thing as the Israelites. We can come up with our own reasons. Oh, I sinned. I, I sinned in this way. God would not want me back. I am unworthy of him. How often do you believe that lie of Satan? God is with you if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. He made that covenant with his people in Israel. And Jesus gave us that promise when he left this earth. God has called us back to him. He's called us to change our attitude, not to be fearful. He's called us to take courage. And he's called us to work, to persevere.
in the final three verses, four verses, he tells us, look ahead to greater glory. We looked within and, and see that we're to let go the discouragement that we have by the comparisons that we make. We are to look up and lean into God, to trust him and obey him, to recognize his presence with us. And in these last four verses, we're to look ahead to greater glory. Gladly choosing to serve God brings him glory. The Israelites had romanticized the past and they had disregarded God in the present and they had just forgot about the future. And so God has addressed those first two things and now he's going to draw their attention further. He's going to give three prophecies and they have multiple fulfillments. So some apply to right then to them and, and some still apply to us. And then some will be fulfilled when Christ returns at the second coming and then sets up his millennial kingdom and even into the new heavens and the new earth. So let's look at these because what God is doing here is infusing hope. We know him to be faithful. We've experienced his faithfulness. And by that, we mean that he keeps his promises. And so when he gives these prophecies, we can bank on it. It is true. And whether or not you think they affect your life today, what they do is they affect your outlook, the hope that he gives us. And when we have hope, then we are stronger to serve God. We have courage. We are willing to persevere. And when we do that, we bring God greater glory. And we allow him to continue to work in our own lives to bring him glory. God provides these three prophecies. The first one is that he's going to intervene in verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea also and the dry land. This shaking of the earth, literally a word picture for earthquake uh, in the original language here. The, the first shaking of the earth was at Mount Sinai when God gave the law to Moses and shook the earth with an earthquake right there. He's saying, I'm going to do that again. I'm going to intervene in humanity. I'm going to work out my process. And, and what we get a view here is not only an eternal perspective, but the power and the might and the majesty of God. Again, he's calling us to understand who he is because that will lift us out of discouragement. We've got to fix our eyes on an eternal perspective, realizing his power and join him in his work. The second prophecy is that God has all the necessary resources for his work. That's the, the principle of it. Verses 7 and 8, I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all the nations. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Point here is that the God has all necessary resources to do his work. So again, he calls you and me to persevere, to continue to serve him with the gifts that he's given us, the calling that he's given us, whether it's within a church family or a community. He wants us to serve him. And yes, we will get discouraged, but he is with us and he will empower us to carry out what he has called us to do. And not only that, but he will supply all the resources for us. And so here we have God saying, I'm going to shake the nations. And I'm going to use the wealth to fill this house. Multiple fulfillments. We read in Ezra chapter 6 that King Darius gave a decree that the nations around the rulers, actually, out of their royal revenue, were to pay for skilled laborers and to supply all the resources necessary for this new temple. That's God supplying the resources. That's God intervening and saying, I'm going to shake the nations so that they will give you the wealth that is necessary to carry out what I've asked you to do. He's going to continue to shake the nations at the second coming when he defeats them. And in the millennial kingdom, we read that the nations will bring their wealth to pay homage to Christ. So this prophecy stretches out from the time of the Israelites in 520 BC 
all the way to eternity. That's pretty exciting. And it's especially exciting to me that, that he gave us that tidbit of faithfulness by giving them great hope through the supply he had through King Darius right then. They didn't know about that when Haggai was giving them these words. The third prophecy is that God gives us hope by informing us of a greater glory to come. Verse 9, the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Promise number one here is that the latter glory will be greater than the former glory. How is that possible for this measly little plan of a temple? Well, this temple will be built and it will be renovated by Herod. And Herod's really going to doll it up. He's really going to dress it up. He wants to go back to the glory days and he wants his name to be important. And so in some small way, it's going to be greater than the former glory. But the main thing that's going to happen is Jesus Christ is going to do ministry in this temple. He's going to walk in and out of this temple. His glory will be made known there. In fact, when he was an infant and Simeon saw him on the steps of the temple, he said, the glory of Israel has arrived. So God is speaking about the glory of Jesus, but he's also speaking about the temple in the millennium. When the King of Kings and Lord of Lords inhabits the temple, when the glory of God and the Lamb are the temple and the light, and the glory of Jesus is far greater than even his veiled glory in his first advent. God promises that the latter glory of the house will be greater than the former. And while me, we may want to figure it out and know what that's going to look like, I know I certainly do, it's worth noting that he's just calling us to enjoy that truth, to be hopeful, to be glad, and to look forward to that day when we will be with him in glory. And not only has he promised glory, but peace, because wherever he is, there is peace. And we know that at his first coming, that he offered peace to all who believe in him, peace between man and God, for those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. We are reconciled to God. And the ability to reconcile to one another. God gives that kind of peace. And Jerusalem in this world, as discouraging as it is to live with all the complications and all the social issues and all the political issues and all the financial issues, all the relational issues, we know that we will experience peace in his presence for all eternity. And we have that to look forward to. We are to look ahead to God's greater glory. And I would say this in conclusion, I would add a fourth look. And that is that we should look around and offer encouragement. Look around and offer encouragement. That's one of the commands of scripture. We see it in the New Testament three or four times that we are to encourage one another. That we are to acknowledge that there is Season, a season, sometimes seasons of discouragement or circumstances in our lives. And we're not doing this just to prop people up so that they might fall again. We are doing this to point them back to Jesus, to let them experience his work in them, to restore them to their service to the King. We want to be a people that continually offer encouragement. And that's how I've experienced you as pastor and as a member of the church family. And I've seen you do that a lot. And I would encourage you to continue to do that. I saw a great poster this week on Instagram. I study scripture more than Instagram. But. And it's one of these posters, it was just a poem, but it finished with the idea that each of us has an endless and limitless supply of encouragements. So take the opportunity today to be kind to someone, to tell them what you see in them. As, as 
brothers and sisters in Christ, we have the great privilege uh, of telling people what we identify that God has done in them or how God has crafted them for service or for relationships. We have the opportunity to love on people. All of these are forms of encouragement. You guys do that so well. I saw a text this morning about setting up another meal plan for people. These are all encouraging things, and I would encourage you to really lean into that because when you do that, those are things of eternal impact. You are impacting lives that people, that God has handcrafted to bring him glory. And when you encourage me, when you encourage one another, when you encourage your family and extended family and neighbors, then you are pushing them back toward Jesus to love him, to experience him, and to serve him. And that's a beautiful thing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the privilege of seeing in your word what these Israelites, your people, went through many centuries ago. We thank you that your word, your truth, your grace is timeless. And we thank you for the privilege of seeing a strong call to take courage and to re abound in your work because it's never in vain, but in such a compassionate and gracious way. And we thank you that you offer the resources and that you draw us forward with hope. And we ask for the grace to respond to you and even to be your instruments of encouragement. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand up with us?
Five minutes and we will meet on the other side of the hallway for the marriage mentoring meeting.